This episode is brought to you by Knowing Hospitality, a full-service hotel management company that has developed a simple and straightforward management fee based on profit, not revenue. If you're a hotel owner that believes in a new way of doing business and want to learn more about the benefits of a profit-based management agreement, visit knowinghospitality.com. Now let's get to the podcast. Welcome to the Proven Principles Podcast, the show that deconstructs the inner workings of the hospitality industry, breaking down the tools, tips, and tricks that the world's best-run hotels use every day. Here's your host, Adam Knight. Year two of the show is officially in the books, and what a year it's been. Going into 2021, I know everyone hoped that the pandemic wouldn't be the big story, but that turned out to just not be the case. That said, what turned out to be more interesting to me were the societal and cultural shifts in approaches to work and what people value. Only time will tell if this continues to be the case, but I'm fascinated by the monumental change and it's hard to see how things can go back to the way they once were. As for the podcast, it's grown tremendously this past year and thanks to your support, we're closing in on 100 episodes. This should happen sometime around mid 2022 and it's a milestone I never thought we'd hit. I'm working on something special for this and you'll know all about it as soon as the plans come together. I also wanted to share a few fun 2021 facts about the show with you. We've released over 40 episodes this year with nearly 35 hours of content. The top listenerships by order are US, Canada, India, UK, and the Netherlands with several other countries close behind the top five. As for this past year, there were far too many great moments on the show to count, but I've tried to pull together some clips that resonated with me and that received great feedback from listeners. From marketing to diversity and inclusion, we had some incredible thought leaders whose insights and perspectives we think are important to highlight and share on this year-end episode. So let's get to it. This is the best of 2021. Enjoy. In this clip, Anthony Lazara from Little Hotelier discusses the best use for marketing dollars and how you should be viewing your relationship with the OTAs. Here it is. And it's one thing to say that you, you're at the big box hotel in your major urban city center and trying to drive direct bookings that way because you've got name recognition behind your, your property and you're in a city that a lot of people are traveling to. You've just got, you've got density of, of guests in, in a particular area versus somebody who's got your, you know, hotel ABC in your drive-to market that's, or even in your urban center, I mean, it doesn't have to be drive-to, that nobody would be searching for because they don't know your name. They don't really know that you exist. And you've got this, there's this strange landscape of like, you know, as that independent hotel, do you, do you spend marketing dollars against some of these big uh, these big hotel companies trying to drive a handful of direct bookings if you're lucky. Uh, meanwhile, spending potentially thousands of dollars, your customer acquisition cost is really high versus like, do you just spend that money on other things and rely on the OTAs to fill your hotel? It's a, it, I mean, I, I know that there's probably people that are like, yes, always go after direct bookings, but like, you've got to figure out what the best use of your money is. And I'm mm-hmm. not necessarily advocating you should fill your hotel with Expedia guests or booking or whoever. But is it worth going out there and spending marketing dollars to maybe get two or three room nights a year, uh, you know, that are not business travel, like legitimate direct booking leisure guests versus, you know, just relying on OTAs? Yeah, exactly. And it's that funny, funny piece too, to where like, you know, some hoteliers hate online travel agencies um, because they're hating the commissions, but it's one of those things we always call it a necessary evil, right? 
they're going to take their commissions, they're going to take their revenue. But they're, the great way to look at it is they're only making money if you're making money. The only way they're doing it is they're bringing revenue in the door, right? So it is at a cost. But like you mentioned too, where do you kind of weigh the cost and how do you figure out, all right, if I'm setting up a cost per click model against some of these big guys, how, how am I going to weigh out versus just doing that direct percentage with the online travel agencies? But what a lot of hoteliers don't really understand about these online travel agencies too is where they're bringing in, of course, Expedia bookings or booking.com bookings, Hotel Tonight, you know, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. But they also found that we did a report, it's something called the billboard effect within within the industry that one in four uh, guests that actually see you on an online travel agency are going to go direct to your property's website to check you out. Mm -hmm. And especially in this new post-COVID era that we're in, we've been seeing that more and more common that guests are actually going direct to properties websites to check out the property to see their COVID guidelines to see their updates on the check-in process on the cancellation policies and then also they've been finding too there's a lot more packages and deals that they're pushing out direct that you can't get via these online travel agencies so with travelers becoming more and more educated it's really crucial to be able to have these different avenues on your on your website to have little pop-ups saying hey here's x percent off for long stay or these are the different packages we're running and mm-hmm. then also show that hey listen we've done our our guidelines we're you know clean we're doing xyz to help bring you in so we can keep you guys here for a longer time right so mm-hmm. it's kind of that way off between having the online travel agencies but also helping them drive direct bookings uh, at the That's, same time i actually that is a really interesting idea where you could also you could almost like piggyback off of the OTA's omnipresence <laughs> and if you can build yourself a great you know li- make sure that your your hotel listing looks incredible and then people go over to your website to check out your hotel and that should look incredible maybe they just book direct with you when you're when they're on your website so they're so the guest is using the OTA more as a search engine than they are a booking tool Exactly. And it kind of leads into that fact too, because I'm, especially with travelers being as educated as they are nowadays, I feel like travelers know just every, just about everything is the industry. People are shopping around. They're going to between three to five different sites before booking a hotel. So with this, they kind of understand the commission in the back end, but they also understand that typically you can find a good deal booking direct. So if you go there and a promo code pops up or they have a different rate or different package that you're looking for, then there's a way to kind of entice those guests to book direct. So as long as hoteliers are staying on top of their website, making sure their website and booking engine is updated, it's responsive, it's mobile friendly, and you have some different pop-ups and different packages that are that are going to entice them and bring them in, then not only is it going to help convert those guests without the commission fee, but then you could also kind of bring them in with an added on fee. Whereas they were looking at staying for three nights, but hey, stay three nights, get the fourth one free. Now you can kind of get that longer length of stay added in here. And then even then upsell them at checkout, which we've been seeing time and time again with these booking engines to where they'll you go through the checkout. And then now it's like, hey, you know what? We actually have this tour package. We have golf. We got this bottle of wine for half off. You add that mm-hmm. in and it's an easy way to take a $500 reservation to a $600, $700 reservation just like that. Heather Myers from Tradeify shares insights into attracting new entrants into hospitality and the changes that COVID has made to the workforce. Tell me a little bit about kind of where we're at right now from a recruiting perspective. What's what's the lay of the land right now? Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I think this is one of the first times that I can ever remember where sourcing candidates is is really a challenge. 
there's still, I think, a lot of fear. People are still afraid to go back to work, especially in very customer-facing roles. Um, So for sure, in certain industries, and some people who were furloughed have gone on to do other things because they needed to feed their families, Mm -hmm. so they couldn't wait to come back online, right? So I think for one of the first times, we're seeing, okay, now we've got to be more creative about how do we source candidates? How do we get candidates in? As opposed Mm -hmm. to having this huge abundance of candidates And it's more having to weed out people, right? So I think now it's that trade-off, right? It's how do we get enough people in that we can still only hire people who are going to be good in the role and not just hire someone because they're a warm body. But it's a smaller pool now. So you're still looking for those, you know, high caliber people who could have gone off to do other things, other interesting things. Maybe they're working for themselves now and they're out of that, that pool. Right. That's, that's, that's tricky. Right. So, and you're working with all industries. This isn't just a hospitality thing. It's not just a hospitality thing. We do have some industries that actually still have a ton of applicants. In, in part, those tend to be things that are kind of more stable. You know, we've got some work from home things that people have been doing that they still have plenty of applicants for. Some of the grocery chains still have plenty of applicants, for example, because that was something that people still stayed in and and went people from other areas like restaurant would go into. But certainly hospitality and and even other kind of customer facing roles that aren't hospitality are being impacted more by the shortage for sure. Yeah. You know, this is one hundred percent an opinion statement, but you know, we hear that the state of recruiting is so difficult right now in a lot of industries because of stimulus and unemployment. And, you know, while that might be true to a small percentage of people, I don't get the sense that that's the case across the board. I think it's, there seems to be a, a fundamental shift in, in people that were in, and this is hospitality related specifically, just because that's my field, that are, that just aren't in the industry anymore. They don't want to deal with the uncertainty. They don't want to deal with everything that the hospitality industry throws at them. So it feels like we're just in this place now where we've got to figure out how to attract people from other industries to get into hospitality, to replace the the bodies that left. Correct. I think that's very true. And I think one of the key things, I mean, I know a lot of people do talk about it's stimulus, it's, it's, it's that... But I think of it a little differently. I mean, I think what COVID has done is made everybody think about their own worth. What am I worth? What is my life worth? I think we've all done a lot of that kind of deep soul searching. And so we don't want to be considered disposable, right? And so I think people are more and more thinking, what am I going to do in my life that, you know, where I feel valued? by my company. I feel like they value me. They respect me. They care about my health and safety. And so I think that that's the piece really that we need to tap into when we're thinking about recruiting and getting people in from other areas. We need to remind people that we care about them, that we care about their health, that we care about their safety, that we want to pay them a living wage. And I think, you know, just it, pulling people in through those things will be so helpful. Ken Merkel, Senior Vice President of Operations at Avocet Hospitality, talks about what they learned no longer works as a result of the pandemic. 
Here it is. If you had to Monday morning quarterback the last year and a half a little bit, looking back, going into it and having been through the storm, is there anything that you know you as a senior VP of operations or the organization has learned through this process that you're going to maybe take and change the way that you've done things in the past going forward? I think operationally, of course, we've discussed some of those things. So there's there's still things out there uh, that we'll continue to contemplate what those services are, how they look. I mean, we, we used to have, uh, you know, there, there was different things that we provided for the guests that, you know, whether it was a little small amenity that was uh, a localized food product, uh, you know, here in Charleston, that was just a, a nice treat that, that disappeared. And whether we bring that back, you know, is, is that something that really cements our experience or was it just something we thought we had to do to get that guest through the door? And, and now we're not, you know, we haven't made that determination 110%. Um, it, same thing with breakfast. If, you know, a lot of marketing uh, schemes uh, include breakfast or whatever, and breakfast has changed tremendously. So those kind of things. And then as you, you know, we dealt so much with the relationships. And those are the things that you look back on and say, what could I have done better to handle uh, how we, had to furlough people. Did we do the best job we could? Uh, I think, you know, if you talk to our uh, director of people and culture, she would tell you that we did a pretty good job and we continue to do a pretty good job. But, you know, there's, there were a a few folks that probably fell through the cracks and you, you know, because you, you count on them as family, you, you don't want to lose anybody. And so you, you go back to that and you say, we could have done this a little bit differently. Um, I thought we were, you know, us as a company, we were pretty proactive. We came out right away. We knew what we were going to do. We got open quickly so we could bring people back and put them back to work. Um, So that was a a positive. And um, it it was tough just to get that confidence that we could control. And that was a lot of it is how did we as a, a management group, really effectively battled the COVID situation with tracing and all those things. That's probably uh, what we look at the most and say, did we do a good job on that side so that we didn't alienate a, a, you know, a a team member or, you know, potential guest as well. So we, we continue to to look back and, and evaluate and, you know, but we're moving forward and, and it's busy. And so, you know, now everybody's trying to take care of the family members, the team members, and the guests all over again. Yeah, right back into the fire. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of um, critically analyzing actions of the past. And, and you know, the, the great leaders will be the ones that critically analyze themselves and how they've done things. Uh, but how organizations handled the last year and a half is most certainly going to be critically analyzed by the team members that 
are still there and are no longer there. Um, and, you know, I guess all we can hope for is that there's a good dialogue uh, coming out of this so that, you know, everybody feels heard and that, you know, we can really truly uh, take some valuable lessons as we move forward. Right, right. And I think, you know, we did a lot of, uh, you know, peer review and we did uh, employee surveys and, and we've taken a lot of that to heart. And, um, you know, there, there's always going to be a, a few things that, uh, you know, you have to take to heart and really um, look at them. But but I think even with some of our employee surveys, they, they were appreciative of some of the things that we did. You know, you don't always hit a home run. You got to hit a few singles here and there. So. In this clip with corporate trainer and executive coach, Stephanie Karadin, we discuss how to engage an intergenerational workforce. You bring up an interesting point about an intergenerational workforce. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think now, now more than ever in history, there, we've got more generations working, working. especially, you know, in a, it, at all at one time and probably all under one roof. Yes. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about policies that were written 20 years ago, that's very, very true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, on, you know, what's a good way for, man, I feel like I'm wading into deep waters here, <laughs> but like, what's a good way for an organization that may have many generations working under one roof who, uh, you know, through experience and age and different life stories all have a, a different view of the world, a different way of approaching things. Some are easier to turn to work with. than others mm-hmm. and work with than others. How would an organization, if you're, okay, so if you're sitting back and you're, I don't know, you're VP of human resources mm-hmm. and you're like, man, we got to, we got to figure this out. What mm-hmm. to, to try to get more engagement in the job. Maybe we have employee opinion surveys that we need to, an engagement surveys mm-hmm. that need to get better scores. How do you start? It seems like such a big thing to get your arms around. It is. It's a pretty big endeavor, but what I've, um, what I've seen and what I've worked with is going backwards. So instead of starting from what I would call, um, because the, let's put it this way, 90% of the time we're going to have the older generations in higher level um, positions. And then the younger people will be in, you know, entry level or, you know, middle or entry level management type positions. Mm -hmm. And what I've, what I've learned and what I've noticed is to reverse engineer. So instead of starting with the higher level um, executives, I like to start with the lower level, the entry point, the younger people. The only reason we do this is because a lot of times we already know what the um, older people's grieves are, what they, um, their policies, how they think, their views, because we've been working with them for so long, right? Mm -hmm. We have more experience working with those types of people. So now we're still learning how to work with Gen Zs and how to work with millennials. And they're so much different. Their views on the world is so much different. Hmm. The way they approach things is so much different. So I like to start there and then reverse engineer to the top where we can bring their grievances to the higher positions and see how we can work it there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like we're taking... Um, you know, the grievances from the kids and bringing it to the parents type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I like that though. Yeah. And then um, trying to find that 
happy median, which is very hard, don't get me wrong, even though it may sound easy, it's very hard, but to find that happy median somewhere there in the middle between leadership and entry level mm-hmm. is the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And then you almost create this uh, uh, this effect of, of change from a larger group at the bottom, yeah. there's usually more people at people the bottom at in the multiple bottom. positions, exactly. right? Exactly. And influence, uh, yeah. And it's like up. a compromising type thing. I like to call it the marriage of the two, mm-hmm. of the few generations, right? Because if you meet at the, in the middle, there's more compromise than could, that could be made at yeah. that point. For sure. For sure. Um, Obviously, I imagine- you know, we can't please everybody, but we try. You try. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get 50 plus one, I think that's, exactly. <laughs> you're winning, exactly. right? Exactly. This next clip with founder and CEO of Sextant Stays, Andreas King Giovannis. He shares how to define service philosophy and the importance of sticking to your values even when times are hard. I had that experience myself in hotels where I was able to, to bounce around and, and try different things and work in different departments and sort of work my way initially laterally across mm-hmm. and then start to make my way up the ladder. Um, and, and I only bring that up because there's so many parallels, again, to, to what you're talking about, to people's individual experiences in the hotel industry where they've done the same thing. Um, and the difference might be that those individual KPIs that you're talking about maybe aren't as administered uh, so um, specifically to each individual employee Mm -hmm. within a hotel, you know, so I'll give you an example. A lot of properties or a lot of companies have moved to the NPS rating model, right? Where you're just trying to see if people would recommend you. And there's a lot of science behind, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not that equates to a certain level of business success. Um, And they tend to be moving away from those really long form feedback calls from all these, you know, JD Power and all the other rating agencies. Um, But Threading again, I, I use this term again. We're kind of threading the needle and finding that that space where you just get relevant feedback that is going to tell you whether or not the guests are enjoying their time there. But you can also have the discipline and the diligence to pull out relevant information and apply it to how the employee is performing. And then you use that data to to reward them for good behavior and you and in a meaningful way, not just a yeah. Starbucks gift card. Uh, then, exactly. Or you know, choose your gift card. Um, yeah, that's going to create powerful, powerful, not just, yeah. you know, that's a retention recruitment strategy, but also for like when it comes to like buy into the culture. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, absolutely. I think the issue is with, with some of these third-party agencies is there's no recognition. Uh, you can do a great job or a terrible job. It doesn't matter at 4 PM you're done for the day. And to your point, the incentives are these small spot bonuses, which which we still do, but nothing is more frustrating than having promotions kind of be random. Uh, maybe the housekeeping supervisor just happens to see that you did a great job that day, but you hadn't done a great job the last three months. Um, and someone gets promoted uh, ahead of you who who maybe shouldn't have. And that's incredibly demoralizing. So it's not just about upward mobility, but it's about transparency, predictability, and and fairness. And you need those data-driven decisions to to be able to do that. Yeah, merit-based more than anything. Yeah. Um, With a mix of remote workers and on-site, on-property workers, 
I would think that it's very important to have a, a well-defined service philosophy and a way to measure it. Um, if, if you had to describe what the company's service philosophy is um, and how it came to be, how would you do it? Sure. I would say we have seven core values. I won't list them all, but on the most basic level, it's empathy. We have to be able to relate not just to our coworkers, but to the guest, uh, to investors, to owner partners. Uh, it, it really comes down to that. And it's very easy to have a great culture when times are easy. But culture is really what you do in your darkest, most dire moment. And so for us, that was obviously the second week of March 2020 when. Uh, when Trump issued the European travel ban and bookings just fell off a cliff. And we really stuck to what made the company great. And we said, look, um, we are going to pay all of our rents on April 1st, and we aren't going to furlough people. We are going to figure out uh, how do we pivot to this new long-term model or midterm model. There's demand people coming from New York or Boston or San Francisco. The uh, Areas that that were hit hardest uh, initially, traveling nurses, um, student housing. A lot of people, a lot of students couldn't go back. Um, they couldn't leave leave the U.S. Um, so it was. It really came down to adaptability and and empathy. But if if I were to choose one word, it would be empathy. We recorded three episodes on diversity and inclusivity this year. The first was with Daniel Poulin, where he shared insights into unconscious bias and how to measure diversity efforts. The question that comes to mind is, and you know, forgive me if I don't ask it properly <laughs> or in a good way, but no it's it's how do you measure an organization's diversity effectiveness or diversity? Maybe that's not even the right way to ask it. How do you measure the like? What's the what is a uh, how do you measure like what's the goal you try to set and how do you measure against it? Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to diversity, I mean, obviously, um, whenever you, you, I think most of us have uh, our engagement survey on a yearly basis, we're trying to, you know, assess the employees' satisfaction with their work. So there could be some questions in there where we ask the employees to self-identify. So whether they do it or not is another story, but you need some sort of data. So let me give you an example. So um, in 2020, we had Black Lives Matters. Right. It was very, um, um, a very strong um, moment for the, for the for the industry where we had manifestations happening, especially in the U.S., all over the place. And then companies all over the, the, the U.S. and Canada have started making statements about how they would like to change their practice and their diversity in order to have more people from the BIPOC community. BIPOC is uh, the Black or Indigenous and people of color, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So then one of the tendencies may be to say, okay, well, we want to have 30% of our managers and above being people from that community by Mm -hmm. 2025, Mm -hmm. right? But Mm -hmm. then if you don't know where you're starting, it's kind of tricky because now what if you had 5% right now of BIPOC? Mm -hmm. And you want to bring it to 30% in three years, it may not be realistic because if right. your turn if your turnover is not as quick as this, there's no way you're going to be able to replace, sorry, but all the white faces right. by people who are representative of other 
race, right? right. So, so I think I think asking people to self-identify in one, in some of those questionnaires is a very good way to start assessing what is diverse, the diversity of your workforce. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it, in your point about getting into management and leadership positions, because if you walk in, I mean, the hotels I worked at are incredibly diverse. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking back though, that was primarily in line level positions. That's right. <laughs> right. And then you this. get into leadership positions and it becomes a little less so. Mm-hmm. Same with uh, women in position of leadership. I mean, it, it is very common in the hospitality industry that the people at the head of the corporation or at the head of the hotel are mostly white men, mm-hmm. right? And right. this is when the uncomfortable conversation needs to happen. And this is when we as, a, as an industry have to look at this with, with, with different eyes and put, put system in place that is going to ensure that this is not going to continue. Mm-hmm. Right, and, right. and I, I have a few ways of doing this. I mean, I, one one of the way, and this is all maybe for entry level, but one of the the tip on 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 increasing your diversity is try to remove the name from a resume. It's very simple, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you see the name on a resume, obviously, depending on if the name is very gender gender genderized, you mm-hmm. may know if it's a man or a woman. But sometimes it may also tell you a bit more about the ethnic background of a person if the name reflects that, right? right. So, you know, there's, I, I, I think I heard somewhere that there's an orchestra in the U.S. that actually does blind auditions right now where the, the player is actually behind a, a, a partition. So mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the person who is selecting the person to play the flute or whatever it is does not see who is actually playing the instrument. Mm-hmm. So a little bit similar to this. So can we, if it, whenever it's possible, remove the name from a resume and try to see if really you're able to give it to a, the person who, you know, without any bias, because we have yeah. a bias, right? Right, right. And, and, and maybe one of the main thing as well is your recruitment uh, team maybe often goes to the same place to recruit. And maybe it's a university or college or um, um, professional school that unfortunately is not very diverse. So if the mm-hmm. school where you get most of your people is not diverse, chances are that you, we won't get much of that later on, right? So you need to maybe right. go and knock on somebody else's door to bring diversity into your environment, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. You, you bring up a great point about unconscious bias. And was this a part of the discussion that you were in with Accor and in, in the, plan, the DNI plans of how to address that? Because that, I imagine that's, a, that's another really big hurdle to get past. Yeah. Oh, it's it certainly is. And you know what? The, the, the tendency for many organizations that do not have a DNI strategy mm-hmm. and do not have a person who is knowledgeable about DNI working for this company. So basically they're working only with committees of people who are very passionate about DNI. One of the tendency is to do bias training. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read and what I've heard, and for people who have been in the industry, it is really not the place where we need to start. Because Mm -hmm. what happens is that basically we are trying to train, again, the most likely white male of the company about not having bias from the people who are the minority. And it doesn't come across as as being very nice because they 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 kind of rebel sometime against this kind of training as something that whether they feel they don't need or they're not comfortable with it. So it's mm-hmm. not it's not the first place to start, and I'm not I'm not saying that I know where the first place to start is, but uh, it's we all have unconscious bias, and then we need to find ways to eliminate those mm-hmm. as much as we can. And 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 what I was 
saying earlier is that I think that it's very important to have somebody in your organization that actually knows about DNI from an education point of view and from a lived experience point of view and can guide your strategy. So mm-hmm. if you're working for a corporation in hospitality, having a paid position that looked after DNI mm-hmm. is key in in my opinion on how we can move forward. In this next clip from our second diversity and inclusivity episode with Kirst J, we discuss the power of language. Here it is. So we talked about onboarding some of the change room uh, things that the hotel is doing, uniforms, uh, asking guests how they, you know, what are their pronouns or how do they prefer to be addressed? Uh, what else should people in frontline service positions know about, and even, you know, maybe those in human resources are in positions to have these conversations in their own hotels or their own companies. What else do we need to have an eye on here? I think, um, well, back to pronouns, I think language is really key and um, kind of removing bias. That's something that is is huge. Is, um, everyday interactions with people is just strife with bias. If I'm seeing an email come in, I'm gendering that name. If I'm seeing a guest walk up, I'm gendering that person dependent on how they look. Hmm. And it's what's really lacking is um, moving away from this thought of the binary, male and female, and um, you know, using they, them pronouns when you're unsure of the, the person's pronouns. Or in the spa industry, at least, it's really hard um, because people do have preferences for who their therapist is, mm-hmm. um, but trying to remove gendered preference um, and not so much remove it completely, but maybe to ask, do you have a preference in therapist instead of do you have a preference in male or female provider? Because mm-hmm. what if I want to work as a provider? What if I get trained as a provider? I'm not really going to have an opportunity within that language. I think language is really the key because, like I said before, it doesn't require capital. It can be changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting. That's an interesting thought. I mean, how do you? And this is a th- maybe a thought experiment, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure something you definitely thought about before. But <laughs> you know, when, especially in a place like the spa, that is so personal. Mm-hmm. When you're, you're you're like you, there's not a lot of other people that you would ever get undressed in front of, <laughs> and let right. them you know <laughs> touch your entire body, uh, mm-hmm. you know. It, but you know, it's a very personal experience, and people are going to have, um, I, and therapists too, like massage therapists, like are going to have a very, uh, I imagine, comfort boundaries are going to be very mm-hmm. well established, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd be curious to know just from your perspective how do you it's is it it's not necessarily about pushing those boundaries is it it's more about like you know give you a scenario if a guest Mm -hmm. called and they said the guest said they have a preference of a male or female therapist Mm -hmm. and one wasn't available. A therapist who didn't, and maybe I'm getting way too like, like what if, what if? And I, if, <laughs> I apologize if I am, but like it's it could be a real scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, if a male or female therapist wasn't available, but someone who who 
didn't identify as male or female was available. Mm-hmm. What would, how, how would you handle that? How would a spa? Cause that could, that could be a very real situation that comes up. It, it really could be. And I think um, in using myself, like if I had trained to become a therapist, I've always wanted to be an esthetician. I love nails. Um, if there was no, um, if there was a guest who did have a preference, say for a female provider, and, you know, we had asked, do you have a preference in provider? They said, oh, we have a preference in female provider. We don't have a female provider available, but we do have CARES available. They're mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would recommend that this person because of this. I think it's really just changing um, the conversation to focus less on gender and make it more on customizing the experience. I love that you said that. Yeah, I think that's something. I think that's something that we talked about um, in the early stages of this call as well. Is just how frustrating it is from my perspective because a lot of the time, um, people who you know um, have issues with what I'm doing or with being more gender inclusive in their language say that I'm putting too much onus on gender when it's actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to alleviate a lot of um, gender difficulty our language. Yeah. I love that you said that it's about the experience. It's mm-hmm. about, it's about what the person's going to get by, you know, going to the spa or what, you know, staying in right. the hotel, going to the restaurant, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And, and it's it, getting out of that very sort of narrow view of, uh, of mm-hmm. who's providing the thing, the experience that that guest is, is purchasing. Right. Cause I mean, we sell experience in hotels. That's yeah. every, and everyone's capable. We're world-class. <laughs> oh my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. Your hotel's unbelievable. Everything that we talked about today and me having a pretty good sense that there are a lot of people in a lot of hotels that are maybe a little bit further down the road in these conversations than your hotel is at and far more that haven't even started yet. What's the message that you want to get out there to the, to the people that are listening right now. And you know, you've probably got a few different audiences listening right now. Those that are in position to enact the change, those are in position to uh to ignite the change, uh, some people resisting, other people pushing really hard. What do you want to say to them? Basically, what I want to say is trans people exist, non-binary people exist, and just the fact that um if people are more open to having these conversations and more open to learning and failing, a lot of the time failing um, and receiving criticism and using that to grow, then really we're moving forward, we're moving in the right direction. And I think eliminating a lot of that fear that people have to have these conversations and even begin asking questions of this nature I think is is really key for finding uh, the future of hospitality because you know the, the trans experience is challenging but also very wonderful and rewarding and freeing mm-hmm. and I think that um, it's a it's a huge group of people that not a lot of um, hotels or um, areas of hospitality can really capitalize on or provide experiences to because. Um, I think our practices and our understandings are a little bit more limited. And I think starting your own conversations within uh, 
either an organized DNI committee at your hotel or industry, or just amongst yourselves as colleagues to see how you can really provide these beautiful experiences to all guests, mm-hmm. I think is, is really powerful. I think that's really well said. For those people that are afraid to have these conversations because they are worried about saying the wrong thing or offending, inadvertently offending somebody. What's your advice to them? I mean, this is coming from a white perspective as well. Like Mm -hmm. I definitely, there are conversations that I have all the time and it's uncomfortable. And it really is something that I've been struggling with as well. But really having safe spaces and being more confident to make mistakes. For myself, being misgendered, it really is difficult to hear. But as long as you apologize and try harder next time, that is really all I want. That's really all I ask. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's um, There's less um, onus or responsibility on getting things right every single time. And really making mistakes is the only way that you can grow. And Just make an effort. Yeah, make an effort. Try a little harder. In this last clip from our diversity and inclusivity episodes, disability advocate Dave Barr talks about getting over fear and asking questions about people's needs. I'd love it if you could just dive in for a minute on some of the advocacy work that you do. Um, And if there's any, any messaging or tie back to some of the conversations that you have just kind of like out there in the, in the world with clients, other discussions that go on other podcasts that you've been on that are points that might be relevant to frontline workers in a hotel, or I've always, I want to make sure that we include this or people that work at hotels that have, that have special needs, different needs. I think, the biggest thing I can say, and I say this on other podcasts too, is just, just not be afraid. Like ask the question that you're, that you want to ask, you know, hopefully be tactful about it. But I think what, what I try and, and say is like some people, I've had people say, I, I, I know I should be politically correct. I'm like, you know, in some cases, political correctness isn't, isn't all it's cracked up to be. Please just by all means, ask ask the question. If I'm if I'm comfortable answering it, I'll I'll answer it. If not, if I'm not, and if you know something like that, then I'll tell you. You know, if something offends me, um, I'm a pretty straight shooter when it comes to stuff like that. That's kind of the message I would put out: is if just if you're just not sure what to do, admit it, and just like I don't know what to do. Um, Priscilla and I, when we would encounter a situation, we'd never. We would sometimes literally look at each other and be like, okay, how are we going to do this? Um, And I think that's the biggest thing is just know that everybody is, everybody has their own needs. Everybody has their own fears and comfort levels and and things like that. And for me, it's just don't, for me personally, it's, it's don't be afraid to ask those questions that you think that you think are, are questions that I I would be afraid to to know the to, to give the answer to. Does yeah. that help? Yeah, it absolutely does. I think it's a great message. And it's it's um striking me right now that it was 
effectively the same message that came out of the first diversity podcast that we did and the second diversity podcast that we did. Yeah, that's actually what inspired me that I was like, wow, Kirsch said the same thing. I I think I should email this guy and say, hey, do you want to talk to somebody who has a disability? Because I think there's so much fear and I'm just as fearful sometimes of things I don't know myself either. And I'm just as human as the rest of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... I, I think those are the things people are so fearful of what they don't know. And, and that's just like, well, you'll never know unless you ask. This was the best of 2021. Let me know if anything stood out for you this year or if you have any feedback for the show going into the new year. I want to take a moment to thank you for your continued support every single week. It means everything. And I can't wait to show you all the great things that we're working on for the next year. And on that note, I want to wish you a happy new year and all the best in 2022. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.